Well, last week we started to look into the scriptures at the lives of men and women who decided to live heroically in their generation. Men and women who changed the course of things by pushing back evil, advancing good, and making a difference with their life. Uh, Their lives, I hope, inspires us. I hope it inspires you. I, I feel that it inspires me to believe that I can do the very same thing, that you can do the very same thing with your life, that you have the capacity to change the course of things, that we have the capacity to push back evil, to advance good, and to make a difference because that's what this series is all about. Last week, we talked about a man who became a hero simply because he encouraged other people. He gave away confidence. He gave his support to people. He gave second chances. He believed in people. And because of it, he became a hero simply by encouraging other people. Now today, I want to talk about a hero that uh, probably doesn't end up on people's short list as it relates to people they choose or think of considering as their heroes from the Bible. Uh, Today, I want to talk about the herdsman from Tekoa. And just in case you have no idea about the herdsman from Tekoa, uh, let me start with Tekoa. Tekoa was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And we're introduced to a herdsman, a man who owned sheep, a man who owned a fruit orchid. Um, He tended uh, to fig trees. Uh, He's a man that once we piece together the things that we do know about him, and we don't know a lot about him, but he was a man of great influence. He was known by many people. He lived during the days when King Uzziah was king in the southern kingdom and Jeroboam II was king in the northern kingdom. Uh, There had been civil war under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and the kingdom of Israel had split into two, Judah in the south, in Israel in the north. And so we're introduced to this herdsman from Tekoa uh, who has a message from God, uh, a message for both Judah and for Israel, but his message is primarily for the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the only thing that we know about this guy are the things that he tells us about himself in the book that bears his name. And the book is Amos. The book of Amos is in the part of the Old Testament that we call the Minor Prophets. It's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Those last 12 books we refer to as the Minor Prophets. And you're right, if there's such a thing as the Minor Prophets, there has to be such a thing as the Major Prophets. And, but when we think about the Minor Prophets compared to the Major Prophets, they're not minor because of influence. They're not minor because of the importance of their message. They're minor as it relates to the size of the book. Uh, The 12 books of the Minor Prophets are some of the most profound reading in all of the Old Testament. They cover about 450 years of Israel's history post-Civil War, Uh, so 450 years during the divided kingdom. Their message was not popular. Uh, Most folks don't open up the Old Testament to the books of the Minor Prophets to find encouragement in difficult days. Their message was not popular. Matter of fact, most of the Minor Prophets were ridiculed, persecuted, and put to death. So when we're introduced to this minor prophet by the name of Amos, who was a herdsman from Tekoa, we need to understand that his name means burden bearer. Uh, He's a guy who's carrying a weight. That's how we're introduced to him. He, uh, He looks around at his culture. He looks around at his world. He looks around at his nation. And what he sees, he feels. He isn't apathetic to what's happening in his day. Uh, He doesn't ignore what's happening in his day. He's not so busy that he doesn't have time to care about what's happening in his day. What he sees happening, what he hears happening, what he knows is happening, it weighs on him. And it becomes a weight that he carries around. It becomes a burden. It, It weighs on his thoughts. It weighs on his heart. And he looks around at what he sees and he pays attention to what he hears and he can't dismiss it. He can't ignore it. 
He can't remain silent about it. And that's how the book of Amos begins. It says, this is what he saw and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The lust pastures of the shepherds will dry up and the grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. So here's what Amos does from the very beginning of his book. He points towards a future judgment. And he says, Israel, if you don't change some things, if you don't reform some things, judgment is coming because not only has Amos noticed what's happening, God has noticed what's been happening as well. And so God speaks to the nation of Israel and to other nations as we'll see in a moment. He speaks through Amos to the nation of Israel. And it's as if God is roaring like a lion. That's the language that Amos uses because he's saying to Israel, this is serious. What God has to say to us, and and can I just go ahead and tell you, lean in, pay attention for just a moment. What God has to say to you today and what God has to say to me and to us today, this is serious. It is not to be ignored. It is not to be minimized. It is not to be dismissed. It is the roar of a lion. Something about the roar of a lion, just FYI, just in case you wanted some random piece of information to carry with you the rest of the day. Lions roar at 114 decibels. That's, that's louder than our music is on a typical Sunday morning when we have physical gatherings. 114 decibels. You can hear a lion that roars at 114 decibels up to five miles away. So here, here's the image. God is refusing to be silent and God isn't whispering. God wants to be paid attention to. So in the following verses, Amos calls out an indictment against neighboring nations around Israel. He calls out nations like Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and Judah. And when you read about it in the following verses, I'm not gonna take time to read it, you can read it on your own. He calls out things like cruelty and slavery and broken treaties and senseless violence, ethnic cleansing, brutality, disobedience to God. And he starts with large concentric circles around Israel. And then he gets a little bit closer with nations that are closer to Israel until he's only left with Israel in the middle of the smallest circle. Israel is in the crosshairs of God's message. And Amos says, this is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. Well, what have they done? God says, and I will not let them go unpunished because they have sinned again and again. They sell honorable people. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. And in other words, they're selling people into debt slavery. Someone borrowed money, they weren't able to pay it back. So the folks that they borrowed money from put them into debt slavery so that they would have to work to pay the money back. But not only pay the money back that they borrowed, but excessive, offensive, oppressive interest on top of the debt that they originally borrowed to begin with. And they were forced into slavery. And he says, you're selling people into slavery for something as meager as the cost of a pair of sandals. And here's what had offended Amos. This is what had offended God. The people of God, Israel, they were treating people like commodities. They were not treating people like people created in the image of God. So Amos goes on and he gives us a very dramatic picture of what's happening. He says, they trample helpless people. Just think about that for a moment. He says, they stomp on the head of innocent people. They crush the heads of innocent people. They trample helpless people in the dust and they shove the oppressed out of the way. Out of the way of what? Out of the way of justice. The people of God have become so hard-hearted. Their conscience so calloused. They beat down the helpless and they feel nothing. Here's an image that may 
relate to you concerning what Amos is trying to say. He's saying, you have your knee on the neck of the helpless. You have your knee on the neck of the powerless. You have your knee on the neck of the voiceless, of the defenseless, the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor. People who can't defend themselves. People who have no course of action legally. The powerless, the voiceless, the defenseless, the marginalized, the oppressed. You're crushing them with excessive interest. You're crushing them because they're locked in a justice system based on bribes and favoritism. They're in a system that's tilted towards the rich and the powerful. And when the system is tilted towards the rich and the powerful, it is tilted away from the most vulnerable, the least protected. They are left without equality and they are left without equity. It was the people and it was the system that was keeping an entire group of people in Amos's day from experiencing justice. Now, this is so relevant. Amos's point is this, the helpless, the powerless were being exploited by a socioeconomic religious system that robbed them of justice guaranteed by the law of God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So Amos, he keeps on going. He says, both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. In other words, not only are you exploiting all of the poor and powerless and voiceless, you are sexually exploiting women. You are sexually exploiting women, whether those who were cast into debt slavery or those who were temple prostitutes engaging in pagan worship ceremonies. He says, either way, you're exploiting, you're crushing the head of young women. And so he continues, he says, at their religious festivals, they, the people of God, they lounge in clothing, their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. In other words, he says, you're going to worship as you celebrate injustice. You drink wine from large buckets, wine that you bought with the unjust fines that you placed on the heads of the poor that they couldn't afford to pay to begin with. You're trying to worship, enjoying the fruit of your injustice that comes from your hands. He says, you're wearing the clothes, the, the shirts, the coats, that other men and women had put up as a security for a loan. You go to worship with their collateral on as a boast, with your conscience completely fine with it, numb to the fact of the very things that break the heart of God. Think about that. And as you think about that, let me ask you some questions, some questions that I've been thinking about and I just wanna throw it out and let you think about it. Does it at all cause us to fear or to be concerned that our conscience can become numb to the very things that break the heart of God? Does that bother you that we can do that? That we have the propensity or the potential to do that? Is it possible for some who have to not be bothered by the lack of justice for those who have not? Is it possible for those who are on the inside not to be bothered by the lack of justice for those on the outside? Is it possible for those who are white to not be bothered by the lack of justice for those who are not white? Is it possible for us, is it possible for us to champion a system and benefit from the said system, even though that same system may be failing other people through acts of injustice? Is it possible for those of us who are born not to be bothered by the lack of justice for some of the unborn? Is this possible to get in such a situation? 
where we're not bothered by the things that bother God? Well, that's where Israel was. And God is saying to Israel, if anybody should have known better, Israel, you are my people, you should know better. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you. Oh, people of Israel, against the entire family that I, God said, rescued from Egypt, from among all the families of the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all of your sins. And don't miss this. God is reminding Israel about the grace that he has given them. He is reminding them. He says, everything you have is a gift you did not deserve. Think about that for a moment. Everything you have, Israel, is by grace. You breathe in grace. You breathe out grace. You work and have energy and health because of grace. You have wealth and resources and opportunity and advantage because of grace. Don't think for a moment that you deserved it or earned it. He says, everything you have, Israel, is by grace. Why is, why is he reminding them and us of this? Because when we think we've earned what we have and deserve what we have, we are one step away from oppressing and mistreating those we feel didn't earn it and don't deserve it. So he takes them back to their historical narrative. He says, I chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give birth to a family that would give birth to a nation, that would give birth to a kingdom that would one day bless the entire world. I rescued you from the injustice of Egypt. I brought you across the Red Sea. I gave you a new way of life, a new law, a new constitution, a new judicial system, a welfare system, a religious system, an economic system built on what was important to me. I was your king. This was a theocracy. I was king. You were my people. This was the kingdom of God. And I was building a system to show you what was important to my heart. And what we find is that caring for the most vulnerable throughout the Old Testament was important to God's heart. It's almost like throughout the Old Testament, it's like God is saying, I stand on the side of the oppressed, the marginalized, the helpless, defenseless, and powerless. That's the reason you find God talking about the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the disadvantaged, the powerless, the defenseless, the voiceless. That's why you find God identifying with those folks over and over again. Now, I'm gonna show you some verses, and if you don't wanna see these verses, you won't see these verses, but I'm gonna stick these verses in your face for just a moment, and I hope they make you as uncomfortable as they've made me, and I hope you have to wiggle in your seat as you listen to these to figure out what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for others? What does this mean in our world? God gave the nation of Israel as their king laws that were close to his heart. And this is, this is what he said in Exodus 22. He says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. If you'll remember in Amos, they're keeping it. They're not giving it back. So they're breaking the very laws that God put in place to protect the vulnerable. He says, this coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, God says, then I will hear for I am merciful. The implication is you are not. Are you hearing what's important to our heavenly father? Listen to what's important to him. He says in a lawsuit, you must not deny justice to the poor. Why the poor? Because it's the poor that often experience injustice. They're the powerless, they're the voiceless, defenseless. In the mountains, you know, I was raised and I heard people say all the time, well, it's all about who you know. I'll tell you, buddy, it's who you know, it's who you know. Well, it's not only about who you know, but it's also always been about what you have. But what about the people who know no one and have nothing? What then? 
Those are the folks who are locked outside of the chambers of justice. Many times it's the poor that's considered less valuable or more dangerous than someone who has more resources or more money. You've seen it happen. You've experienced this in one shape, form, or fashion or the other. God would say in Exodus 23, he would say, be sure to never charge anyone falsely with evil. Never sentence an innocent or blameless person to death. Never take an innocent person and declare them guilty. For I never declare a guilty person to be innocent. Take no bribes, for a bribe makes you ignore something that you can clearly see. A bribe makes even a righteous person twist the truth. You must never twist justice or show partiality. Never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. Let true justice prevail so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Don't miss this. Don't you dare have a system built on bribes or who you know or a wink, wink and a shake, shake because who gets left out? Those who can't afford to bribe, those who don't have the connections, those who don't have the opportunity and it's the powerless and the poor and the voiceless that always have to pay a different price. They often most always pay the higher price, heavier sentencing, false convictions, unhelpful stereotypes. And so, if God hasn't gone far enough, he's gonna go further. So let me just stop for a moment and say, do you need a breath? Are you offended yet? Are you uncomfortable yet? Listen to Leviticus 24. He says, this same standard, everything that I've just now told you about, all these laws, this same standard applies both to native-born Israelites and to foreigners living among you. See, some of you right now, you're ready to end the broadcast. Right now, you're checking out because you're like, I see where this is going. I can read between the lines. No, you can't. You haven't read this at all. Just listen, pay attention. This same standard applies both to native born Israelites and to the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord, your God. He says, you must not oppress foreigners. You know what it's like to be a foreigner for you yourselves, Israel. We're once foreigners in the land of Egypt. He says, once upon a time, you were the powerless. Once upon a time, you were the defenseless. Once upon a time, Pharaoh had his knee on your neck. How can you turn her around and do it to somebody else? How is that even possible, Israel? God goes on, he says, so never take advantage of poor and destitute laborers, whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your own town. He said, listen, it doesn't matter, poor, citizen or not, I want you to give them the same rights. I want you to pay fair wages. Don't exploit someone's desperate situation for your own benefit. That's not what my people do, God says. Don't do it. He says, you must pay them their wages each day before sunset. Why? Because they're poor and they're counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you and it would be counted against you as sin. He's not through. True justice must be given to foreigners living among you and orphans. There, here it is, the protected class, the people God's concerned with, the people that God has identified with, sided with. Orphans, and you must never accept a widow's garment as a security for a debt. Even if a widow needs to borrow, you do not take her coat as collateral because God is protecting those who have no one to protect them. Deuteronomy 24, he says, let me tell you why I told you all this. Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Don't you dare ever forget it, Israel, because if you do, that's how you end up where you are. Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from slavery. That is why I have given you these commands. Once upon a time, you were helpless, voiceless, defenseless, marginalized, oppressed. 
I stepped in, I dealt with the injustice in Egypt. I brought you out, I gave you a new way, I gave you a better way. How now can you side against the people that you once were? Because we see God identifying constantly in the Old Testament with people at the bottom of the ladder. He says, I am the father to the fatherless. I'm the husband to the widow. I'm concerned about the foreigner and the immigrant. This is unbelievable. And God says one more thing. In this new way of doing things, in this, in this new law that I'm giving you, Israel, I want everybody to be treated just and fair despite their circumstance, despite their identity, despite their label, despite it all. I want you to give equal treatment to everybody under the law. And then I want you to go a step further. And I want you to give the powerless and the voiceless special consideration. So when you harvest your field, you harvest your field, but you leave the margin around that field for the orphan, for the widow, for the foreigner. You give that class, you give that group of people who cannot fend or defend for themselves, you give them special consideration. This is God's system. And in a, in a world where tribes and bloodlines ruled everything, this was breathtaking. This was not obvious. This was counterintuitive. Nobody would have ever thought of this. This came from the heart of God. And some of you, you're thinking, I'll tell you what, it doesn't sound very American to me. Well, God's standards don't always sound American, but they do always sound like God. Back to Amos. The people of God saw no, saw no problem with the injustice that they were a part of. They considered themselves blessed. They worked hard, they earned it, they deserved it. So others who don't have what they have, experience what they've experienced, they just didn't care. Because what we know through Amos, the people of God were also practicing idolatry. And idolatry, when you have something more important, someone more important than God in your life, it always places us at the center of what's most important in our life. Idolatry causes us to no longer champion the things that are most important to God. But the people of God forgot that. So they would show up to the temple to worship. They show up to church to worship in Amos. He's got a burden. And he says, I hate. He says, let me tell you what God says to you folks. I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festival, festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Why God, why we're, we're doing exactly what you told us. We're going to the temple, we're going to church. He says, away, away with your noisy hymns. He said, I don't wanna hear it anymore. I will not listen to the music of your harps. He said, instead, let me tell you why I don't wanna listen. Let me tell you why I'm not impressed. Instead, I wanna see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living maybe a version that you recognize a little more, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Martin Luther King Jr. quoted that particular verse in his I Have a Dream speech. Amos was an activist in his day. He was an advocate in his day. That was his superpower. He used his superpower of advocacy for those who could not speak for themselves. And the message of Amos is so uncomfortable 
Because here's what Amos seems to be saying. If you aren't interested in justice, if I'm not interested in justice for the least among us, he said, why don't you just put down your Bible, stop singing and go home. If you aren't interested in justice, equality and equity for all people, most important, the most vulnerable among you, he says, just stop thumping your Bible, stop quoting your Bible, stop singing your songs and just go home until justice rolls on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. Righteousness is about right relationships with other people, right relationships that are based on fairness and equality. He says, that's what I want to see happen. He says, you are treating people with a lack of equality. You're treating people like they have no dignity. He says, your singing means nothing to me. He says, justice, those are the steps that we take to bring about righteousness. Justice are the steps that we take to policy, to laws, to culture, to societies, to families, to communities, to nations, to worlds, to make sure that every person is treated with dignity because every person, regardless of class, regardless of color, regardless of orientation, regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity, that every single one is made in the image of God. So we are to deal with every single person with justice, compassion, love, and mercy. That's what we get from Amos, a hero of his day who left Tekoa, marched on past Jerusalem and went to the north and had a message for King Jeroboam II. And he says, injustice, is the mark of God's people rather than justice and compassion and love and mercy and God is offended. So what do we learn from Amos? What do we learn about being advocates for the most vulnerable? Well, choose to be aware. Choose to be aware. It's not an easy thing to become aware. It's not a comfortable thing to be aware. You gotta study to be aware. Sometimes you have to read to be aware. Sometimes you have to talk to people with a different perspective, a different experience, but choose to be aware. Do the hard work, be aware, and then choose to care. Because you can be aware, but you don't have to care. Amos was aware, and then he chose to care. It was a burden to him. Choose to speak. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Stand up for those who don't have legs to stand on. Choose to speak, choose to do something. So well, what can I do? What can we do about injustice in our world? Well, it starts with you and it starts with me and it starts with those who are closest to me. But why don't we start caring more about policy? Policy is important because policies impact people. Laws are important because laws impact people. Government is important because governments impact people. Faith in families, it's important because faith in families impact people. Why not get engaged with your culture? Why not engage yourself in the process? Instead of being apathetic to policy and to law and to government, to your neighbor, to the families around you, instead of being apathetic to being involved in your local church, instead of being apathetic to the mission of Christ in this world, do something. It starts with you. 
starts with me. And champion what God values most. So, what does God value most? Well, one day Jesus was asked, what's the most important law in the books? And he says, it's to love God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to me. The most important thing to God is all your neighbors. But the question is, are all your neighbors the most important thing to you? All of them. Black, white, rich, poor, gay, straight, guilty, innocent, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, U.S. citizen, non-U.S. citizen, Christian or non-Christian. Are all of your neighbors most important to you, more important than you? My neighbors are what's most important to God. And when God is most important to me, my neighbors will be most important to me as well. Amos closes with judgment on the way. The nation of Assyria and Babylon are on the way. But it closes with a glimmer of hope. And in the final paragraph, Amos promises that a kingdom is on the way. A kingdom that is eternal, where justice and righteousness prevail where love reigns, where justice truly does roll like a river and righteousness like an unfailing stream. He promises a king. And as the New Testament opens up, we find the birth of that king in Bethlehem. And who does he identify with? Well, he's born in a feed trough. His parents are so poor, they offer pigeons as offerings at the temple. He identifies with the homeless as he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, the son of man, have nowhere to lay my head. He identifies with the wrongly convicted as he suffered the greatest act of injustice in the history of the world. He identified with sinners in every generation of humanity's story. The one who deserved vindication received condemnation. so that those of us who deserve condemnation could receive vindication. And the perfect combination of righteousness and judgment and mercy and grace, when it met together there at a cross on a hill called Golgotha, when Jesus died for you and Jesus died for me and he gave us grace that we did not deserve. And now he says to us, Everything you've got is by grace. And once upon a time, you were helpless, defenseless, hopeless, voiceless. And I stepped in and I was your voice. I was your strength. I did what you could not do for yourself. How can you withhold that type of grace and love? from someone else? How can you side against someone once upon a time you used to be? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I understand why the prophets were ridiculed, persecuted, many of them put to death. Holy Spirit, speak. Holy Spirit, 
Help us to wrestle with this, be uncomfortable with it. Toss and turn with it. Ask questions about it. And figure out what does it mean right now in our world, in our culture? What does it mean for Christ followers to be champions of justice and compassion and love and grace? What does it mean to keep our eyes on the most vulnerable knowing that's who you've decided to identify with? God, let this message fall where it needs to fall. Shatter what needs to be shattered. Loose what needs to be loosened. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am so grateful that you decided to be with us today for the Creek Church Online. I know that today's message is challenging. It's a bit uncomfortable. It has been for me. I hope that it is for you. I hope this is something we wrestle with. I hope this is the beginning of a conversation to find out what does this mean in a world where there's injustice. And I hope that you are fully aware there, there are many injustices in our world. But what does that mean for us? How can we be involved? Let's start a conversation. This is a moment for the church to rise up. This is a moment to be a voice for those who have no voice, to give power to those who have no power, to be the champion for the most vulnerable. This is that time. Let's not be Israel. Let's be Amos. Let's advocate on behalf of those who don't have anyone standing up and standing for them. Before we go, I just wanna encourage those of you who've been with us the entire time today. If the Creek Church is your church, if you believe loving God and loving people is the name of the game, that it's the mission of the church to see people far from God come to faith in Christ, I wanna encourage you to give just now, knowing that generosity changes lives. The directions are there on the screen beside of me. It's safe, it's easy, and it's the way the majority of our church, the way we're giving in these days when we're not able to physically gather. But even though we're not able to physically gather, the church is still being built. Matter of fact, just this past week here at our church, we had a student in our upfront student ministry follow Jesus in baptism. How awesome is that? Jesus is building his church, even while the seats of a building are empty. All because you're there, you're sharing what we're doing, and you're giving to the purpose and the cause of Christ. So thank you so much for being with us. I'll see you back here next week for the Creek Church Online. God bless you. Have a great day.